Hi, welcome to my podcast. And uh, today we're having a great interview with Leslie Reagan, President of the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, who has done great work on research and miscarriage, but who has, as a feminist, has transformed the Royal College, only the second uh, leader of the college uh, in history. And uh, she's going to talk about women in medicine and leadership, about reproductive rights and some contemporary issues about childbirth. Uh, But first, I'd like to talk about three things that have been in the news, which are a bit depressing. Uh, Ebola, child separation, and also the whole issue around structural violence of um, austerity. So first, Ebola, this is Um, spiralling out of control in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mike Ryan, who uh, is an Irish professor from, um, who sorry, who runs the urgency section of WHO, says it's basically a series of forest fires and has mapped out beautifully, I'm going to put this on my blog, the uh, way in which geographically it's spreading and how difficult it is to get this under control. Um, the horrible figures are that health officials have confirmed 2,340 cases and 1,571 related deaths in North Kivu and Ituri provinces, which is very, very high rates. And the problem uh, for the poor agencies trying to tackle this, like WHO, Red Cross, UNICEF and others, is that they face no security. The foreign and renegade troops are involved in conflict in this area, that there's a great degree of political division and lack of trust in the community, Um, that there are a lot of local con men who are delighted to have development money coming in for the crisis. So with inadequate funding also for the agencies, uh, this is a serious problem. To be fair, the UN have appointed David Gressley, uh, who is um, the chief of the UN's peacekeeping mission in Congo, who has a great deal of experience in the area. But will he have the resources or person power to really make a difference? And I also think regional African leaders have to come together to try and tackle this terrible health crisis and somehow call a ceasefire to enable public health to gain the upper hand. But at the moment, the projection would be that this is going to be worse than the West African crisis. And uh, it's extremely worrying that it gets so little coverage in global media. Right. The next thing is children separated. We've seen the horrible pictures at the Mexican border and the death of the father and his child all over the papers. Uh, Most of the families or unaccompanied children that arrive at the border are, of course, fleeing from quite a complex mix of social and economic factors. And we know that separation of a child from his or her family is completely inhumane, traumatic, and will cause severe negative uh, consequences, social, emotional, for the children and their families subsequently. I, 
I've spoken to many people in their 70s and 80s who were evacuated during the Second World War from London to get away from the bombs. And the separation period from their family was extremely traumatic, worse actually than being exposed to the risk of bombs. Now, we know that hundreds of migrant children have been kept in filthy conditions. They've been detained for weeks without access to soap, to clean clothes, to adequate food. And the delegation from Congress was treated with a fair degree of contempt by the border control people who also have been sending around abusive memes on their uh, internet. So this is not a good situation uh, in America. Now, in China, we've also had a big report from the BBC about the way the Muslim Uyghurs of China are being uh, treated. Many adults moved into vocational training centers, which is a euphemism for uh, incarceration, and that many Muslim children are being separated from their families and inculcated with Han Chinese and uh less emphasis on their religion. So this this is another problem. So our two globally major economies uh, do not seem to have an impressive track record on looking after uh, their children. The final point I'd like to make, which is in some ways even worse, is the structural violence of austerity policies in economics. So I've just been witnessing and watching on TV the Tory leadership campaign for the next Prime Minister of the UK, elected simply by a relatively small number of Conservative members. It's interesting that all of them uh, voted for austerity, for cuts in welfare and benefits, for the bedroom tax, and many other uh, regressive measures that plunged uh, millions, actually, of people, many of them in work, in, in zero-hour contract work, and they plunged them into poverty, into food banks, into stress, and into hunger. Now, Philip Alston, the UN rapporteur for children, came to the UK and published a report um, which essentially has shown that uh, 14 million people uh, are in poverty, uh, that there are record levels of hunger and homelessness, that there is falling life expectancy for several groups, that community services have been plunging. We've seen 20,000 less police on the streets and access to the courts for lower income groups has been dramatically rolled out, uh, rolled back because of cuts in legal aid. Now, uh, my point is that this doesn't even make economic sense because uh, if you look at austerity, the whole point of it was to cut back debt in the UK. Uh, but as many economists at the time, including Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, Simon Wren Lewis from Oxford University, and two Nobel Prize winners, Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman from the United States, pointed out, Austerity will make a recession worse. You have to build big up demand and the government has to step in. And so the austerity measures of George Osborne, the previous chancellor under David Cameron, 
led to the longest recession in the last 300 years. And today, debt is higher. Debt of the UK is higher than 10 years ago. So it hasn't worked. And are they arguing for more austerity? Well, all the leadership campaigners say, no, 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 austerity is over. Well, let's wait and see. But I consider this to be structural violence for many of my own citizens and compatriots. And it's a kind of marker for what can happen even in the wealthiest countries of the world um, and uh, reflects what happens in many countries to a great greater uh, degree of severity. Okay, on those three rather depressing points, we'll move on. And I want to uh, let you hear from Leslie Reagan. Leslie, thank you so much for joining the podcast and for the full start as well. Um, uh, we're going to talk a bit about women in leadership and reproductive rights and contemporary challenges with childbirth. But before we start, I want to know more about you and about why you chose medicine and then Gynae, but a bit about your background. So I don't know why I wanted to be a doctor, but I announced to my father that I wanted to be a doctor on my seventh birthday, apparently. Um, and uh, there was nobody in my family was medical. In fact, um, my father came from a very lonely background. He was born in a slum in Cardiff in Tiger Bay, left school at 12 when his mother picked him up from school one day and left. they left home. Um, and was he the only child? No, he had a brother and a father who they left behind. Um, and his mother was an extraordinary woman, um, I think actually illiterate when I think back on it, because she could only sign her name. Wow. Um, a massively wise woman. Well, she went Welsh or Irish? She Reagan was Welsh. Was so Reagan, so my grandfather was Irish and an out-of-work minor. Yeah. Um, and my grandmother was Welsh. And um, as I say, uh, very limited. I, I think she was illiterate, but she had enormous um, tenacity. Picked him up, picked my... My, my father up one day says, we're leaving this, we're going to go to a better life. Um, went up to London and he worked from the age of 12 to about 15 um, on the markets and things like that, trying to get her set up. And then and when he, he managed... Didn't have to go to school in those days? No. It was very little. There was very little. I mean, well, how was did you know about it? He was born in 1920. Yeah, that's right. Because my parents were born in 23, 24. And they both left school. My mother at 14, my dad at 15. So, and he just disappeared. You know, he, yeah. he disappeared from one part of the country and went to another. So when he was about 15 or 16, he went to night school because he wanted to you know, learn some old stuff. And then he went into Fleet Street as a, an errand boy or a runner. And then he worked his way up to becoming a journalist. And he was the, with IPC, the International Publishing Corporation. And when he was the distribution manager for the Daily Mirror, his great pride was that he managed to get the circulation up to nearly 6,000. So he was organising the distribution and, yeah. and the delivery. So he spent many years writing. And he, did he write yes, as well? He, did, he, 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 yeah, he wrote for many years. Um, he had a lot of, he, at one point he was thinking about going to Paris to, um, to edit um, one of the newspapers there. But he stayed, I think, because my brother and I were at school or at university or whatever. So he was a smart guy. He was a smart guy. And, but the most extraordinary thing is, as I've explained to you, very, very poorly educated. And where he got this belief and passion about the fact that girls really could achieve great things as long as they worked hard and studied or whatever, I, I find extraordinary. I've often looked back on my life and thought, wow, 
it could have been so different because my mother, who had been educated, just assumed that I would get married soon so, after my 16th birthday oh, really? and have kids and make her, give her grandchildren. But for non-British listeners, they would need to know that the Daily Mirror is the largest circulation uh, paper on the, the left, if you like, or Labour Party supporting. Correct. And one of the very few, because most papers are on the supporting the more right-wing stuff. Yeah. So presumably, was your father Labour yeah. Party? He was very, he, yes, he was definitely left of centre. A champagne socialist, I think. <laughs> I remember his best friend, who was also a great mentor to me as well, yeah, was an arch-communist. Um, and he always right. used to send he, he always used to send me um, a birthday card. I was born on International Women's Day, um, and every year I would get a card from him saying "Happy International Women's Day" oh, really? uh, from the Communist Party. <laughs> but anyway, that was just an. So you were, you were at school in near Surrey. Yeah, I went. So I went to a, a, a state primary school, and then I um, uh, went to a private school f- where I got a, a sat a scholarship. Um, and stayed on to my second years. Yeah. Um, so it was, he was doing all, pretty well by this time, was he? No, no, I think he scrimped and saved to, to get me that first couple of years right. and relied on me getting a scholarship so that I then he didn't then pay for, for me from 11 to 18. Um, and it was an all-girls school, and it was actually one of the things that when I had girls, right. daughters of my own, I decided I don't want them to go to a girls' school because they supported. They were very supportive if you were an Oxbridge cert, but I, yeah. I was very good at languages and a duffer at chemistry and physics. So they said, well, you can't go to medical school. You have to be a bilingual secretary. And I said, but I don't want to be a bilingual secretary. So I didn't do particularly well in my physics A-level. So I didn't get into medical school the first time. And I went off and did a bit of travelling around the world and, you know, being rebellious. And then I came back and went to Kingston Polytechnic. Um, and met another to do one your again. to do my yeah. levels again. I met a wonderful um, chemistry teacher who was a retired boxer and had a face that you know made what you famous boxer. No, 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 no. In a minor league. Um, but he just took it. He said to me, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I want to become a doctor." And he said, watching me doing this chemistry practical. Um, his name is Mr. Mercer. And uh, he says, you've no idea what you're doing, have you? So I said, none at all. He said, why do you want to be a doctor? I said, well, I've got to become a doctor. I, I, I know it's what I've got to do. Um, so he said, well, I'm going to get you through this exam. And he did. Um, and um, rather sweetly, um, when I graduated from medical school, my two guests were my dad and this retired boxer stroke chemistry teacher. Not your mother? No, no. She, she, by that time, she was living somewhere else in the world. Uh, with another husband, but those two people came to my gra- uh, my graduation from medical school, which I thought was rather. Well, and you went to the Royal Free, which is well known. Well, it's always the women's medical school. Well, it was only women, yeah. and then they let the men in. So when I went in 1975, it was 50-50 men and women. So I never really thought it was odd being a woman in medicine because I I had yes. I wasn't trained in an environment where where it was unusual to be a woman, and of course many of our senior teachers, because it was the Royal Free, were women. Sheila Sherlock. Sheila Sherlock taught me. She was the one that was very instrumental. She was the one I remember on a ward round just before final saying, speak up, speak up. And then I was talking about something or other that I thought was wrong. And she said, let me give you a piece of advice, girl. She was, yeah. So I said, yes, Professor Sean. I think she was Dame Sheila by then. Um, she said, don't ever bother grizzling from below. If you want to change something, you get in there and you stamp on it from the top. Oh, that's important. She was, for people that don't know, because she's, well, she died about 10 years ago or more. Yeah. She, Dame Sheila Sherlock was the, probably one of the greatest liver 
um, physicians yeah. and set up a huge unit and had an international reputation and as you say became Dame Sheila eventually mm. um, and was a formidable She was woman. a formidable woman um, but it wasn't her that really persuaded me to do, well obviously it wasn't her that persuaded me to do Obstin Gyne but my, my year at medical school were quite unusual. We were known as Fanny's Last Fling because right. Fanny Gardner who was married to George Quist who was the personality on which the Richard, uh, what's he call it, uh, Lord and Doctor of the House. So he was the Lancelot Sprat character, and Fanny was married to him. Yes, Um, Quist. That's right, that's right. They both had a Rolls Royce, and um, they were very, very idiosyncratic. But Fanny was a formidable lady, very, very scary. And she interviewed us all. Um, and then let in some unusual characters. We had a long-distance lorry driver, we had some authors, we had a ballerina, all sorts of rather strange, well, not strange people, but very different from a 90, for a 1975 medical yeah. school intake, which was usually all the swaps, and 95% of them were boys. Um, but she was amazing. Um, but I remember in my interview, after I'd been off around the world, you know, going to kibbutzes and ashrams and things like that, her leaning over, she said, so she tell me, Leslie, Miss Regan, she said, are you a bit of a communist then? Is that, is that what you've been up to? Are you going to be a rebel? Are you going to stir this place up and make it uninhabitable? Um, but she let us all in. When I got to medical school, I met that lady over there. There's a portrait here of, or a very big, large photograph of Luba Repstein, who was an obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Royal Free, took an enormous interest in the students, incredible character, and every year she would pick two or three of us and ensure that we became obstetricians and gynecologists. Oh, really? Absolutely inspiring. I, I think at this point, I should say, we're sitting in your room as president of the mm. Royal College of Oxford and what I've loved about you, well, we should also point out, you're only the second woman president of the Royal College of Oxford yeah. which I find staggering. So the college was founded in 1929 by two visionary men who believed that women's health needed its own specialty. So they were visionary and they were brave and they were pioneering. So they split the Royal College of ONG away from the barber surgeons. And I'm the 30th president and the only other president was 70 years ago, took up office um, Hilda Lloyd in 1949. And what I think is very funny, Anthony, is that over the last three years during my presidency, I've often reflected on the fact that it might, she might have taken up office 70 years ago, but the things that she was dealing with are very similar to the things that I'm dealing with now. Okay. So, 1949, the, you know, the, world, the, the, the government was in chaos, the NHS had just been introduced, nobody really knew what was going on. She had all sorts of things to deal with. She was the first ever female of any medical royal college, and the RCOG archives record that the all-male council who elected her um, described it as being a risky and revolutionary step. And, and so that, I mean, I should also point out, you've got pictures all around the wall here, which I'm sure were not here before, yeah. of the leading women in British obstetrics and gynaecology. Mm. So you've got Hilda Lloyd over there above the bureau. Mm. Here you've got... Mary Anderson, who was one of the vice presidents many years ago. She was a great geneticist, wasn't she? No, no, no. no. She was was a generalist. She worked in Lewisham. Um, I think she should have been president, but she was stopped. And then there was Josephine Barnes, Dame Josephine Barnes, who I think everybody knew about 
Um, also, I think, quite a visionary woman, very stern and very scary. When was she at King's? No, she was at um, UCH and the, what was it called, the Elizabeth Carrot Anderson Hospital. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Margaret Fairley, who was the first female professor in Scotland, and then Louisa Martindale, who I don't know that much about. But, right. but it's just that when I arrived, uh, when I became president and took up office, um, it's customary for the president, as they demit office, to have their portrait painted. Yeah. And the portraits are then hung on the walls around the college. Um, and as you will see, coming up and down the stairs, they're almost they're all male, apart yeah. from the one of Hilda Lloyd. And since the walls were bare, I just thought, well, what about going down to the archive and we got hold of some old black and white photographs and we blew them up? Because I just thought it would be nice. So, and I should just tell you about Luba as well. Oh, yeah. Luba, yeah, yeah. my mentor, um, who, who insisted that I become an obstetrician and gynecologist, not because she bullied me, but because she just inspired me with yeah. how much you could do for women um, and girls if you became a, a compassionate, competent gynecologist. But she's got an interesting story. So she was refugeed twice, firstly from white Russia to Germany. Yeah. And then in 1938, she left Germany because she was Jewish. She got out. Got out and came to England in a rowing boat with 10 shillings in her purse. And she went to Bristol. I can't remember the connection. Was she married to... No, she never Epstein. married. No, she, married. Oh, she was not Epstein Bar. No, no, okay. So she went to Bristol and she um, trained as a midwife. And in January 1940... The Polish School of Medicine was evacuated to Edinburgh, so she got straight on a train, went to Edinburgh, said, I want to register in this medical school, and she played her way through the five years of medicine by playing poker. She was a poker player? So you can imagine what an inspiring (laughs) tutor she was. Was she? Yeah. And she was just amazing. And during the first month of the medical school intake, in the the very Mm. first year, she ran an all-day, an all-afternoon um, um, workshop or tutorial, which was called How to Have Sex Safely. <laughs> and she went through contraception and abortion and STIs really? and how in this medical school it's 50% girls and 50% boys. You've all got to look after each other and things will happen and you all need to understand about the rules of, of biology and reproduction. And, of course, I mean... She was just fantastic. So let me get on to the whole issue of women in positions of power and leadership and your observations of where we're at in 2019. Um, You know, some statistics are good. I mean, more women are taken into medical school now than men, Mm -hmm. which is good Mm -hmm. and and on merit. Mm -hmm. Um, You've gone through the glass ceiling. You've made it. But I imagine you think we've still got a long way to go. Uh, yeah, I think we have got a long way to go, and I think there's a lot of tokenism. Yeah. Um, I have to say, one of one of my previous mentors, I think it was again, it was Sheila Sherlock, said, you know, there's no point worrying about being the token woman. Although one was one time I went and we sat on the Welcome Trust <coughs> panel, and I was the token woman and the token surgeon. Um, you know, they got a bullseye in one person. Yeah. Um, but Sheila always used to say, you just get in there and change it, um, and you know. When you've got equal numbers or fair representation, that's the time that you can worry about things like tokenism, just get in there. At one point, when I, when I first came into the presidency of the RCOG, the vast majority of the presidents of the medical royal colleges attending the academy meeting every month or six weeks were women. Yeah. Interestingly, 
it's like I think so many medical institutions or colleges think, oh well, we've done that now. We can revert back because Claire Marks, who was the first ever female Surgeon. president of the yeah. surgeons, has been replaced by a man. I mean, I'm not saying anything against him; he's very charming. I'm going, I'm going to be replaced by a man. Um, and so, although I think it's important that we get to a point at some stage in medicine, hopefully in my lifetime, when it doesn't matter what gender you are. Yeah. It's all okay. I still think that we have to keep pushing. And I think there's this, you know, there seems to be this biological difference between men and women, that women are very much more self-critical. They don't put themselves up for things. They don't think, oh, I'll have a go at it. They, they weigh up the things. No, are they good enough and all yeah, this sort of business? I say to all the students and, and uh, particularly the female students saying, listen, go for it, just go for it. Because my experience is that, you know, if you... If you need to tick ten criteria for a job, if a bloke ticks four, he'll apply. Yeah. And a woman, if she ticks nine, will still be thinking about, about it. About worrying, you're absolutely and right. It, and I think... And it's the same for things like testosterone, or is it, is it our nurture? Is it that we, you know, women constantly are told that they have to be perfect in order to achieve something? Whereas I don't know. Perfect. I don't know whether it's nurturing um, or whether it's the Y chromosome. Uh, probably a mixture of both. I, do, I, yeah. I think one thing I've learned is that things are rarely down to one cause. There's usually a well, six or one a, half a dozen I, of the other. I was at WHO, as you know, and um, again, it was pretty uh, male-dominated when I was there. Actually, the new director, who is a man, he replaced a woman, has actually equilibrated that. Um, uh, and there are now much more gender balance and actually at UCL my university they have also tried to even up a bit but it's still uh, actually academia is not great I don't know about Imperial where you're from but I mean you've got a woman provost but um, a lot of um, yes but I mean I can say this because um, the, the principal at, right put it this way when I went to St Mary's which is part of Imperial I went there in 1990 as a senior lecturer, um, and I wasn't really planning to remain in academia, um, and then I got lucky, I got a couple of grants and two extraordinarily talented research fellows, and I can remember about 94, 95, going to an international meeting in Europe, and being so proud of these two clinical fellows and the trials, they were doing the clinical trial. Both of them are thinking, oh wow, and getting that high that you get when people you've nurtured have really excelled. And that's why I decided I would apply for the chair when it came up at St Mary's. And initially, when I went to see the, the then principal, who's become, who became a great supporter and friend in, 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 subsequently, but I always remember that first interview when he was looking out of the window and he said to me, I don't know why you've come to see me. This was 1995. Um, I don't know why you've come to see me. Um, you're too young. You haven't got five million pounds of grant money and you're a woman. You're no good to me. Really? He actually said, you're a woman. Mm. And um, I was um, uncharacteristically silent. Um, I was completely knocked over by this comment. I didn't know what to say. So the only thing I could think of doing was sitting down in the chair that was in the room <laughs> off at the opposite side of his desk. And after this long pause, he turned around and he said, oh, you're still here. So I said, yes, I... An appointment to see, and we then had a chat, and I then subsequently uh, went was interviewed, and I was appointed to the post, and he sent me a very charming letter, and subsequently used to in- introduce me as oh this is the this is the woman I spotted, um, so but I do remember it. I can remember thinking, wow, 
Where did that come from? Because you were an eminent researcher. I know you've given all the credit to your clinical research fellows, but you were leading big uh, studies around... It was premature labour. Miscarriage. Miscarriage. Recurrent miscarriage, yes. No, well, I don't think I'm an eminent researcher. I mean, I'm not a natural laboratory scientist, but I'm quite inquiring, and I'm always asking, well, why? And, you know, why don't we understand? Is there any evidence base for that? So... I, I mean, I had a quite a good clinical research career, certainly nurtured quite a lot of other people um, and enjoyed it and got a buzz out of it, yeah. publishing, and but actually changing practice. So I think that what I would say, looking back on my recurrent miscarriage and reproductive medicine years, most productive years, is that we really did change practice. Mm. We, we developed an evidence base for how you investigate people and women particularly who've got pro-thrombotic clotting abnormalities that affect their placenta and the way they implant. And I think we managed to, the team and I that, uh, that we built together, what we managed to persuade people was that in actual fact, early miscarriage and later pregnancy complications such as preterm labour and growth restriction and prematurity and preeclampsia, they all have a common origin and that's the quality and depth of the way the placenta implants in the first few weeks of pregnancy. But when I went into the field, recurrent miscarriage people were sort of over there and the preterm labour and the preeclampsia were over there and never the twain dish meeting. Right. And, now it's, and now everybody understands it's this spectrum. But I think the work we did in miscarriage showing how you could turn the miscarriage patient into having a successful pregnancy, that really helped to un- unlock that, 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 that door yeah. and get people to understand. And it's a hugely underrated problem isn't it lots of men think oh you had a miscarriage what's the and actually many women you know it's it's a deeply psychologically scarring issue it is okay can we move on to reproductive rights Hmm. um you know if you read what's coming out of america with states putting up uh, almost legislative bans to abortion now uh, in this country, I think one of the leadership candidates to be Prime Minister the last two uh, is talking about reducing abortion limits to 12 weeks, which is an incredible change. What do you make of the situation? What are the big issues? I'm frightened by it. Um, when I went to St Mary's in 1990, I had done a termination list um, and a counselling clinic, you know, most weeks of my practising life. I, I was brought up by Luba and others to understand that this was a really important part of women's reproductive health care. Um, and I rather took it for granted that everybody else around me understood that too. I'd heard about these people who conscientiously object and who disagree, and I thought, well, they're entitled to their opinion. But I really can't see why someone would want to be a gynaecologist and not want to contribute um, to this part of the portfolio because it is the commonest procedure that women of reproductive age undergo. And what we know is that if you make abortion difficult to access, illegal, it just it does, the problem doesn't go away. In fact, the problem increases, but it becomes yeah. uh, covert and it becomes unsafe. And as a result, women die. And I think that what's happening in this country is that we've got too complacent. So I said, uh, when I went in 1990, I actually took over the termination service. And then a few years later, when my miscarriage research, rather right. 
for Paradoxical that really took off. I then negotiated with the then chief executive to get another post to look after the termination services. But I've always supported them and helped them. Um, and so when when I discovered about five or six years ago, when I first became vice president here, that in fact there are large areas of this country where terminations of pregnancy are not being carried out in gynaecology units, I was completely amazed. And what I did was a whole lot of digging into what had happened. And over my practicing lifetime, what has happened is that the independent sector have received contracts to do things like termination of pregnancy work. They're all funded by the NHS, but the net result is that only 30% of our gyne units now are participating in termination work. And my worry about that is that we are losing um, a whole raft of experience. So many, many uh, of the trainees and indeed young and perhaps even middle-aged consultants now have no experience of what is the commonest procedure that women undergo. So I started a task force at the RCAG four or five years ago, and we've been working really, really hard to try and reverse that tide. And my message always, sorry to interrupt, no. my message always is you must not be, we must not be complacent. No. And the fact that we have a 1967 Abortion Act does, does not mean that abortion is legal here. It means that it's legal if two doctors sign the forms and the woman fulfills these various criteria. And it's in Northern Ireland, you can't get you can't, you can't. So what happens to women in Northern Ireland? In the well, if you remember, in June 2017, when Theresa May rather foolishly called that election, um, she ended up losing her majority, and Stella Creasy, the MP for Walthamstow, Labour, jumped in there and said, right, if you don't, using the opportunity, when she knew that Theresa May was going to ask the DUP to join her in a coalition, and knowing that the DUP are vehemently against abortion, so Stella Creasy said, if you don't allow women in Northern Ireland free access to termination or abortion in the NHS, then I will stop, uh, put up an amendment to the Queen's speech. Wow. And it was passed overnight. Yeah. So I'd written, along with one of the other presidents of the Faculty of Reproductive Healthcare, to Theresa May to say, you know, we, we must do something about this. You have the opportunity to be the Prime Minister, give reproductive rights to Northern Ireland. Now, I don't think it was my letter that swung it. It was Stella Creasy's um, you know, threat of amendment. But the week after it was passed, I got a letter back from Downing Street saying, you will be pleased to hear that my government has given these reproductive rights to the women of Ireland. And I just fulfilled for me a belief that I've had for a long time, Anthony, and that is um, you travel a lot farther and a lot faster if you don't mind who gets the credit. And I think yes. that's absolutely true. If you don't mind people giving no, the credit exactly. for things, Politics, then you could important. you can move you can move things along. Um, perhaps we'll come back to that when we talk at the end about Figo and your international work. But let's talk a little bit about childbirth. Hmm. And as someone who trained as a neonatologist um, and who at WHO had to try and uh, support the role of uh, midwifery and support for childbirth. Uh, and, of course, at WHO, they had only two midwives when I was there. They've actually only got one on the staff right now and none in the reproductive research unit, which rather horrifies me, out of 80, you know. So it, the, the big balance, of course, is between safety and childbirth. Mm. So you've got available technologies and drugs like, you know, for eclampsia and for sepsis and for postpartum hemorrhage, but also not so over-medicalised that you're doing things that are either unnecessary 
or are going to create stress and complications. And that's been a huge issue in obstetrics and still is, I think. Yes, and there's this really difficult balance between too little, too late. Yeah. And too much, too soon. Correct. And also I think that there's been a a really ugly polarisation between the Royal College of Midwives or midwifery and obstetrics as a specialty. Oh, really? Yes, in the past. I'm I'm very happy to say that it is in the past. And one of the things I'm most (coughs) proud of in my presidency is... Um, forging the really, really strong collaboration with the really visionary current um, um, Chief Executive of the Royal College of Midwives, Jill Walton. And she and I have um, founded this movement called One Voice, Shared Purpose, on the belief that um, the common denominator for women in childbirth and in labour is the midwife. Yeah. Remember that although our newspapers would suggest that it's all blood and gore and crisis in the labour ward or in the delivery unit or at the home birth. Actually, the vast majority of women have uncomplicated pregnancies and deliveries. But the polarisation that comes when you over-medicalise and also when you don't um, heed the the warning signs that things aren't going and that you do need some technical help, the polarisation has been really damaging. And that's why we had disasters like Morecambe Bay or more recently Shrewsbury and Telford. I mean, you could almost write the stories before you did the inquiry, and it's about people saying, no, 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 we're not going to surrender. You know, this woman is... It's a, people thinking that it, they failed because they need to ask for help. Yeah. And I, I find that a complete anathema. So I've always, in my unit at St Mary's, where I've been the chair for since 96, I've always tried to embed the ethos that... Asking for help is a strength. Mm. That you the mean the staff asking for help? Yes. Yeah. And, that, and, that, um, and I think it's this probably the case in most fields of work. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually it's refusing to recognise that you need help is the weakness. Yeah. Um, and that you have to work collaboratively. So um, I always thought, and we used to get on very well with the midwives, the obstetricians and midwives at Samaritan. So I, I was always rather puzzled why this happened. It didn't go right at other places. And then when you visit units where it has become dysfunctional, it's really shocking. It's like a a war, an actual war zone, where people won't collaborate and they want to keep the doctor out or they talk about, oh, those buddy midwives. Uh, You know, it's horrible language, very disrespectful. So Jill and I have forged this thing. We've talked to many of the pressure groups um, who have been anti one lobby or the other and said, look, put your energy to come in with us. One One voice, shared purpose. And if ever I have an opportunity, I put the midwives first, saying, you know, they are the bigger workforce and we've got to work together and complement each other. That's so important. And the great excitement is that I hope that when we move from here that they will be moving with us. But that's not not quite yet in the public arena, but they are. To the same building. Uh, That's just to say the Royal College, which has actually lovely facilities, obviously, Regent's Park, uh, they're giving up their rental because I think the next door neighbour, London Business School, has <laughs> paid more because they're all charging. And we're moving to, going to a nice place. In yeah, we're, Bridge. we're renovating a, a freehold property <clears throat> in London Bridge, and Excellent. I'm really, really excited that the midwives that are co located. So this marriage, if you like, or the end of the war, it will be sustained after your tenure exactly. as president. Exactly. You know, it's interesting because I was in India and I spoke to the permanent secretary of health there and we were talking about why there isn't 
proper midwifery in India. Mm. They have auxiliary nurse midwives, but they're more nurses than midwives. And he said that, you know, he said he was very keen to see that develop, but that actually the, the two groups that had in the past been hostile were the obstetricians and also the nurses, interestingly, because the nurses didn't want a rival cadre to them. Yeah. And so you are up against these kind of professional It's the same rivals. in the States, you see, because they don't have midwives, because that interferes with the billing. For the yeah, delivery. So it's funny. So on that, another pet topic of mine. So, oh, and I must tell you the other thing is that um, Jill Walton, my the CEO at the RCM, and, and I, um, she's got a great sense of humour. So she um, asked me to come and receive an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Midwives, um, and then she said, because um, she said in her speech welcoming me in front of all these people, she said because. You know, we've got this fantastic collaboration, but this is my insurance policy, just in case anything ever goes wrong. And I thought that was a rather lovely joke. <laughs> uh, cesarean section. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was looking at the figures from Bangladesh. Bangladesh has about 35% deliveries in hospital. I think it might be a bit higher now. No, it's nearly 50% actually. Uh, so it's going up. But when you get to a hospital, the current figures are 63% get a cesarean section, which staggered me. Um, The WHO say the ideal number should be between about 10 and 15%. In the very poorest countries, it's much lower than that, so it's, you know, too little, too late. But in Britain, I think the figure is now around about 28%. Uh, in the private sector, particularly in the Americas, mm. you're getting figures up 85, 90%. Mm. And this strikes me, you know, doing a back of the envelope calculation, we're talking about many millions of women each year, presumably getting inappropriate surgery. Uh, what's your view on this and how would you try and bring that figure down in, in the United Kingdom? Or are we up against demand forces? Well, we are up against it a bit, um, and as you say, there is a demand, and there is a. We, there are also. I mean, it's a very complex thing to unpack, because we now have an aging reproductive population who develop more and more complications, often who have delayed childbirth for quite yeah. some time, who are not prepared to take any risk at all, and also I think we've got a we have a culture now, don't we, that thinks that. If you pay enough money and you uh, put enough effort into it, you can achieve your aim. So the massive industry, the fertility industry, often results in women saying, well, I've waited till I'm in my 40s, I've now had this IVF pregnancy, there's no way I'm going to chance having a problem, a complication in labour, and I want an elective caesarean section on that day because of some either some work or family commitment. Right. Um, and, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic I think that people get very, very heated about. I'm not yeah. sure really where the 10 to 15% figure from the WHO recommendation comes from. I don't really see why that's the issue. Um, but having said that, you know, it is very difficult. I remember when I was still doing frontline obstetrics, which isn't so long ago, looking at a 45-year-old barrister who's had repeated miscarriages and stillbirths and trying to explain to her that she needs to have an induction of labour at 40 weeks. And she's saying, but I want to have a caesarean section. I mean, how do you answer that? Yeah. It's very difficult. So you're saying, actually, that's a good point with the population. If you've got a, an ageing population, people expecting yeah. that maybe that 
10 to 15 percent might need to be changed. And one in four women now, pregnant women, are obese. We've got women who are in their 40s and are obese and have cardiovascular disease. Sure. We've got all sorts of complications. But there are risks and complications from caesarean. There are risks and complications from caesarean. Um, but I think that, and, and, and there is also a lobby that say that if you, um, you know, people talk about the expenditure and the risk profile, but there is a lobby also that says that if you, if you factor in all the post-operative or post-birth complications of complex vaginal deliveries, uh, that, you know, that, that there's no di- real difference right. from caesarean section. Right. So I think, I, I think it's complex, and, um, but I, I do think that the increasing morbidity uh, including age and obesity and complex medical problems that 20 years ago mm. women would have been told you ha- can't have a pregnancy, you won't be able to get pregnant. Yeah, yeah. And we've overcome them with all sorts of reproductive technologies and then you're presented as the obstetrician with a problem to solve. And then yeah. in the background, please remember that we spend more on obstetric litigation than we do on delivering maternity services. So the 725,000 babies that are delivered in this country, the budget for that is less than the obstetric payouts at the NHS resolution or the old litigation authority. So if you take, no, the obstetric cases are about 10% of the whole litigation caseload and over 50% of the payouts. My goodness, I am right. So, yeah, I get that. But the potential would be different. So, well, in all countries that are moving from being low to middle income, all these pressures start to creep in. They yeah. may be behind us on the curve, but you know, the more you reduce your fertility, and you know, when we come back to reproductive rights, I'm all for getting women to be in control of their fertility so that they have the ability to mm. choose if, when, and how many times and with whom they get pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the more, the most, that you, as you know, as countries become more affluent. The, the birthing the birth rate goes down the fertility rate goes down and so in all those countries behind it on the curve comes higher operative delivery for the reasons we've already talked about so you don't think obstetricians making money out of cesarean sections is as big an issue oh i think that's 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 a contributor too yeah but then i would say every time any surgeon does any operation you've got to be able to look the judge in the eye and say i could justify giving this woman an anesthetic an epidural or yeah. a GA, or I could justify this complication. It's very difficult. But yes, of course, there's money to be made. And in Brazil, they're making pots of money, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Another big issue, of course, is um, the rising problem of antimicrobial resistance. Mm. Um, certainly, I know uh, that this is underreported, even in the UK. And in India and South Africa, the figures are that there's a lot of babies now be put into, for example, neonatal units where they low risk and go in and then pick up some resistant organism and die. Mm. And this is going to be an increasing problem for threatening maternal deaths if the antibiotics mm. no longer work. And yet there's a big drive, obviously, to get new antibiotics and all the rest. But I was starting to find in, in the developing world that so little attention is paid to basic hygiene. Uh, hand washing, mm-hmm. the rates are very low, obstetric uh, facilities are not particularly clean, and yet we're again over medicalizing in terms of piling in the antibiotics, creating resistance, but not paying attention to, to hygiene. Yeah. Do, you, do you see that as an issue? 
Very much, because as you know, I've done quite a lot of global health work, um, and it, there are some extraordinary dichotomies, aren't there? Very sophisticated bits of equipment without batteries, yeah. <laughs> or without a generator, to so that you know you've got no electricity supply. And as you said, you know, all sorts of posh antibiotics and things like that. But the water is horrible, um, and and the attitude towards very simple hygiene. Um, and sterility is is really lacking. Some people have said that we should have a new model whereby birthing centres should be away from hospitals but nearby. In other words, they're not part of the kind of ecology of resistant organisms, mm. but that women could go there in a low tech environment, perhaps with you know with all the midwives and all the facilities there, and then moved into the hospital only for complications. Do you think that? might happen over time if the situation with AMR and assessments gets worse. I suppose what we have to do is to plot it out and, and try and experiment and pilot it. But what all I would say is that we have a birthing unit in my obstetric team have a birthing unit at St Mary's which is on a different floor. But remember that for um, women having their first baby, there's a fifty or sixty percent transfer rate. And so, if there's any significant transfer rate back into the labour ward for complications, or the need for operative delivery or anaesthetic, you know, you can't have that. You can't have an epidural in a birthing unit. Oh, I see. So, you know, and you know, pain relief can sometimes be quite difficult to organise efficiently. So there was a, quite a high transfer rate from a birthing unit right. into it. And what we know from um, units, whether just in the UK, let alone overseas. Um, where there is a significant geographical distance um, and women are being brought in when they develop complications that often by the time they're transferred and after that you know the ambulance has to go and pick them up and then it has to go back again to the other yeah. hospital there could often be you know irreversible do you think, damage do you think the stress of i was talking to michelle O'Donnell, who says you know the 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 way to antagonize oxytocin which controls mm. labor is uh, to increase adrenaline, and increasing adrenaline is through stress. And his argument is that if you stress a woman in labour, particularly with over-monitoring, you create complications that then need to be... Do you, do you, do you agree with that? I don't think that... Um, no. I, no, I don't disagree. I just find that the advocates of certain forms of natural childbirth become so messianic about it that it, it, it makes me anxious. Right. Um, and I think the, the, I think childbirth is complicated, as we all know, uh, and also deliciously simple as well. It's a, it's a really, it's, it's incredibly, it's a real, it's a real oxymoron in some ways, isn't it? It's just, it's just, it's just so strange, it's so conflicting. And I think the most important thing, if you want to contribute to safe, happy birth, childbirth, is to keep a really open mind and right. recognise that everyone's got different expectations and to try and meet them as best you can. With a with, good personalised midwife. So. With a good personalised yeah. midwife, exactly. And that's why I'm so pleased about this forging this relationship with the RCM because it's the, you, you have to lead by example. Yeah. And every time I stand up on a platform and celebrate with the, with, with the head of the midwives, it's a demonstration that this is a collaborative effort and one of the things that we've said, apart from one voice and a shared purpose, is that we want our our goal is to give every woman a good birth, not a normal birth, because that's assumes yeah, that, that right. others are abnormal. Exactly. I mean, I my my children were my two my twin daughters were born prematurely and delivered by emergency section. 
I don't think I had an abnormal birth no. um, or abnormal delivery. Um, they had the birth, obviously. Um, but I think I had a good birth because everybody around me, or good delivery, because everybody around me was kind, competent, compassionate, and my kids were looked after well. Yeah. And that's what, I think that's what most people want. So just to finish, hmm. um, you are... I think what's always struck me about you is you're a great communicator. I've heard you on radio a few times. <laughs> I talk, that's knack. come from my dad, you see, a, a great talk. Yeah, no, but you have a knack of communicating in a, a clear, sympathetic and also jargon-free way, and I like that. Um, you're getting more involved internationally now with FIGO, which is mm. the International Federation yes. for Obstetrics and Gynecology. Mm. It's the French acronym. Mm. And how's that going? But where do you see your next step after you step down well, in a few months' time? So I've, I, I was elected secretary, so <clears throat> secretary general last October in Rio, and I put myself up for election because um, the thing about Figo is that it's got a million members in over 120 yeah. countries. No, it's influential. And these membership societies, some of them are very effective and do wonderful things, and others are not so effective. And, I found myself thinking, if I could get 10% of that million membership to do something really positive, yeah. it would just change things. And one of the reasons why I think I was so fired up to try and make a contribution that way, and I, I hope I'll be able to do something, um, is that when I was vice president here at the RCOG, um, I managed to secure a very big grant from a US anonymous donor to run a family planning programme in a couple of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And what we focused on was postpartum um, intrauterine devices, so po postpartum coils, so placenta out, coil in, long-acting, reversible contraception, um, which everyone was very sceptical about. Oh, don't they fall out? Well, actually, no, 95% of them don't fall right. out, which means that 95% of those women mm. don't have to come back, and some of them will have travelled days to get to the birthing centre, they don't come back, they don't have to bring all their kids with them, and that they had a reliable form of contraception, but as soon as they wanted to have another baby and they could space their pregnancies, they could have it removed. Easy. And we trained people how to remove them as well. And we also promoted safe abortion care, which is a real passion of mine, because we have to accept the fact that of all the maternal deaths this year, and there'll be about 300,000, 15% of them will be due to unsafe abortion. Really? Yeah. Um, and that's a massive toll for something that is entirely preventable. Exactly. So whatever your views are, whatever your religion is, whatever your ethical code is, the bottom line is if you make abortion illegal or inaccessible, deaths will go up. Deaths will go up. Yeah. And we've seen that with Trump and the global gag rule. Already deaths, you know, the abortion rate is increasing, which will mean that the maternal mortality rate will go up in all those countries that that's affected. Um, but we, 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 we ran this programme, but it was very much focused, Anthony, on teaching the, some of them very lowly healthcare professionals, not just the mechanism of how to do these procedures, mm. but to be really proud of the contribution they were making to the society and to these girls' and women's lives. And what I realised, it was the mentoring of getting you to feel really proud of what you're contributing that produced the sustainability in the programme. So last December, as the four-year programme wound to its end, I was really, really excited when I went back to the Western Cape, not to close the programme, 
or even to start off another pilot, but to hand the programme back to the Western Cape government because they were so excited by the way that the healthcare professionals had adopted it and were effectively excited by their own success and then were mentoring others and were there, they, they, they produced their own ambassadorial network mm-hmm. that we handed it back and they've embedded it into their programme. So I felt for once it wasn't a colonial, we're going to come and do things to people, no, save no. a few lives and then push off. It was a really sustained programme. I, I think there is a big change actually in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, every, a lot of uh, people in the climate change community say, well, we've got to cut population because that Mm. is a very effective way of getting emissions down Mm. but I think just going around and saying give people contraception without dealing with quality services and child health and education Mm. is is slightly naive yet what's really struck me when I was in Malawi for example Mm. or in other parts of Africa and you ask women in the field you know do they want access to good contraceptive services, they all say yes. And they're all very keen that they get that. And it's often not happening. So I think, actually, if people are really interested in cutting climate emissions, focusing on women and children's mm-hmm. health, particularly women's health, all aspects of it, is fundamental. In fact, it's in the top five of things Absolutely. that you're doing. And, you know, that old adage, I mean, it sounds a bit... Um, cliche, but you know the health of a nation is determined by the health of its girls and women because yeah. we know that in this country, for example, women are fifty one percent of the population, but that fifty one percent influence the health behaviors of all of the rest of society yeah. and it 's you know we we are missing a trick every time I say to every secretary of state and any any um, senior person at the DH will listen you know you've really got to remember the fact that if you if you can empower girls and women to know what they can do to help themselves most of it's preventative yeah. um, and you could do an enormous amount and that's why I'm really excited about this women's health task force that I'm co-chairing with Jackie Doyle Price at the moment so it's the it's the only program of work from a royal college or a specialty that's been hosted at the Department of Health. And it's really captured people's imagination. Fantastic. So I'm going to milk it for all we can. But you're secretary at FIGO. Yep. And that's a powerful position. But are you going to stand to be president at some stage? Might do in the future. Depends how much energy I've got there. <laughs> no, but I think it is important. And, it, yeah. and, and they are one of the more influential international... Uh, colleges yes. in terms of policy yeah. and stuff. And, you know, as I was saying, a massive number of, um, of members and uh, an extraordinary reach. Um, and I think that we just need to maximise their potential yeah. to, to improve things, not just for women and girls, but particularly, that's my, my particular interest. Um, but, you know, it, it affects all the other parts of the community and society. So if your mother dies delivering you in childbirth, mm. your, your siblings have got zero chance of getting to school, being vaccinated, having clean water. So it's a massive, massive impact. Well, on that note, gosh, we've been talking for nearly an hour. Uh, thank you so much. And Just I want to. to see you as president of FIGO, <laughs> or if not, uh, on the BBC more often, mm. or if not in some similar position of leadership, which okay. we'll talk about discreetly after the podcast. All right. Thanks ever so much. Thanks very much, Andy. It's lovely talking to you. OK, 
Okay, thanks very much for listening. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please do feel free to share it with them or tell them about it. Or sign up to my blog at www.antonycostello.net. Have a great week. Bye.